This episode of Greater Than Code is brought to you by Atlas Authority. Atlas Authority helps organizations manage and scale their Atlassian stack. With expertise in Jira, Confluence, Bitbucket, and other software development tools, Atlas Authority offers consulting, training, licensing, and managed hosting services. Visit atlasauthority.com GTC to find out more and learn why organizations trust Atlas Authority to implement, support, and maintain their critical Atlassian applications. everyone. Welcome to episode 137 of Greater Than Code. I am Artie Starr and here with my fabulous co-host, John Sowers. Thank you, Artie. And I'm here with our two, count them, two fabulous guests. Today we have Claire McRae, who is an independent consultant helping developers work more easily with legacy C++ and Qt code. She has worked on software development for over 30 years. Until early June 2019, she was a principal scientific software engineer at Cambridge Crystallographic Data Center. And we also have Llewellyn Falco, who is an agile technical coach who specializes in teaching teams how to slay their legacy code dragons. He's also the creator of the open source testing tool Approval Tests, co-author of the Mob Programming Guidebook, and co-founder of teachingkidsprogramming.org. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Okay, so we always like to kick it off in the same way. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different since we have two guests that we have a question to ask for. But, More um, superpowers. Yes. So who would like to start and tell us about their superpower? This isn't a comfortable question for me. I didn't really think that I had a superpower, but thinking about it, I think it's collecting useful information and sharing useful information as well. I've been lucky enough to be going to programming conferences for quite a few years now and to local meetups, meeting lots of interesting people, uh, hearing lots and lots of useful information. And at some point, I started collecting it all in a big pile of markdown documents. And it's so useful to be able to search back through notes of all the talks I've been to. And um, I find that when I meet new people, sometimes... They say things that remind me of other conversations and I start sharing links, I start sharing information and and sometimes even introductions to other people and once in a blue moon hiring consultants or contractors that way. So it's turned out to be a really, really useful thing to do and I'm so glad I've done it. Yeah, like the archivist. Yes. I think where it probably came from is as a teenager, I ended up doing a lot of work on my family tree. And it was natural then to take notes. You wanted to check facts and be able to refer back to them. And so although that was a long time ago, I guess that's probably where it started. Did you find yourself doing specific things to develop the skill as your career developed or did it just happen naturally? Uh, I spent quite a lot of time trying to work out how to store the information and how to make it easy to edit on iPhone and iPad went through a few different technologies and ways of structuring it and adding hyperlinks to it and things like that. So it just evolved. The the particular app I use now is not of any great interest, but I ended up customizing it quite a lot for my convenience and mimicking that customization on a PC, sort of perilously close to setting up a sort of OneNote-like thing, but something I had much more control over the data and where it was stored. So it sounds like you're not only collecting this information, you're also organizing it in a way that increases its usability by structuring it in such a way that makes it searchable and easily accessible to sort of answer a question you might have with that information. Does that sound right? Yes, I I think that's right. And also, Claire is really good at sharing that information. So it's not just coming in, but it's also going out. Mm -hmm. So you've got an inflow and an outflow. So I've got a whole set of questions here. But before we get into all those questions, (laughs) Llewellyn, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? I think my best superpower is my ability to collaborate with others. And the earliest thing that I think contributed to this was as in, in high school, I used to juggle. And one of the things I really wanted to do was I wanted to juggle torches. And I knew 
that there's no way my dad was ever going to let me come close to fire. Uh, and so using my creativity, I, you know, my dad was a university professor. We lived at Michigan State. And I found a local user group there at the Juggling Club. And I brought my dad to there. And I asked them to convince him that I should be allowed to use torches. Because I knew that I could not do it myself. But maybe, you know, you know how sometimes when someone else says something, it makes more sense than when you say it. Having me there was in no way helping this. <laughs> so he called over Lori and said, show Llewellyn how to pass. And Lori started teaching me how to pass clubs, uh, which is an extremely fun activity. It's still the thing I enjoy most about juggling. But it's also something you can't pass by yourself. Like you need another person there. And in fact, the people who are best at juggling this way, it's not that they're so good at throwing tricks. It's actually that they're, they're really good at catching that garbage that you're giving them and smoothing it out and giving it back to you so that everything like like it's the good passers are the ones who when you pass with them all your throws are caught and everything comes right back to you and it was many years later before i had my first pairing session and i think one of the reasons it felt natural there to work in this sort of very coupled mode was because i had already had so much experience with passing and you know I, I juggled for almost a decade at that point and then early on i paired almost religiously i had my own company so it was just the two of us and it was very easy to get people to pair when you, when you're hiring them and then when i started going to conferences we started realizing that the thing i'm doing is very different than other people and this is where mobbing started when i brought that style plus coding dojo back to woody zool who really took it and, and went with it i've gotten a chance to work very closely with tons of people in pairing and mobbing. But I think probably it was just my desire to juggle torches that started this whole thing off. <laughs> that philosophy of, of being a good passer, it reminds me of the, the Unix philosophy in the be liberal in what you accept and, and strict in yes. what you emit. Yeah. Take, like take anything, pasta. clean it up, give it back nicely. Isn't that like Postel's law? Like robustness principle, right? Yeah. Yeah. But applied to juggling, juggling torches. <laughs> and pairing. <laughs> and pairing. Catching the garbage and smoothing it out. I love that. Yeah, actually, that's a really great metaphor because it, it makes it clearer, especially I assume if you're the more experienced person, or at least the more experienced with pairing person in a pair, that like part of your job is filtering out the lack of skill that the other person has and, and, and building a cleaner environment for them to learn and pair in. Yeah. So I like the fact that you mentioned that like skill and pairing, because a lot of times we take sort of skill as an absolute, like single dimensional thing. And it is very much not. So this is really interesting. You have very kind of compatible superpowers here. We've got Llewellyn, who's very observant about the dynamics of pairing and strategies on how to catch the garbage and smooth it out. And then we've got Claire, who's collecting and figuring out how to share all this useful information. And it's, it's sort of this distiller, structuring, kind of distilling all the lessons learned and structuring that information, figuring out how to share it and be useful. So what type of work are you two doing together now? And what's it like pairing together? We have been creating the C++ version of approval tests. And it started, what, about two years ago, Claire? Yeah, about 18 months, yes. And uh, with a tweet, I had just started a client uh, that was doing stuff in C++, and my C++ was a little rusty, but also I knew I was going to want approval tests there because it makes testing easier, and C++ is usually hard to test stuff. And so I, I put a tweet out that said, is anyone interested in working with me? And Claire responded, i still not entirely sure I know why. So at that point, I'd gone to working part-time at work. I was down to working just three days a week. And I, for a year or two, hadn't actually programmed any C++. I'd become a product owner, really sort of combined product owner, project manager at work. And my C++ was feeling really, really rusty. And I think my identity, I'm a programmer at heart, and Llewellyn mentioned some, some work he'd done with Woody Zool. And although neither of them knew it at the time, they'd 
put together an amazing two-hour video uh, with fantastic advice on uh, refactoring hard to work with code. Oh, so thanks. Llewellyn was kind of a programming hero of mine and I followed him on Twitter and in my memory I left it a dignified half a day or something before replying and saying well I might be able to help and not admitting as how rusty I was but Twitter suggests that I replied actually a lot quicker than that so um, Llewellyn immediately said let's let's get on a phone call and we just started screen sharing and trying things out. And I felt I contributed a little bit to it, learned a lot, and we just kept going, just kept pairing together, remote pairing from uh, a long distance apart. Yeah. So one of the things that I do a lot when I'm coaching is retrospectives. And after the very first time we paired, we opened up a mind map and we did like a really so a mini retrospective on like how that day had gone. And definitely, like, there's a ton of things that I just couldn't even, like, she, Claire's like, I'm rusty in C++, but she was not rusty at all. <laughs> like, like, she knew her stuff really solidly. But we had set everything up on my computer. And so I prefer to pair where for an idea to go from your head to the computer goes through the other person's hands. But a lot of this stuff was going from my head to my hands, which makes Claire more like watching over me than participating as much. And that came up in the retrospective. And so we had a good enough time working together that she wanted to do it again. That's, that's always a plus. And so we set up another time. And this time we we said we need to focus so that it isn't that way. So we spent time like getting her computer set up, getting stuff working so that, that it had to interact with both of us. And we did a retrospective at the end of that one. And I remember, I forget how you worded it, but it was something like, Last time when I didn't know what you were doing, I didn't want to interrupt you because like, I didn't want to break the flow. That is such the exact wrong thing, right? Like, like the whole idea of two people working together is you want both minds, you want both understanding. And so when we switch that, then every time I would say something either stupid or unintelligible, which, you know, is happens quite a lot. Claire would just sort of look at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And it would force that conversation. I don't hear a lot of people doing retros at the end of the day around a pairing session. It's not something I normally hear. Could you tell us a little more about like what your process is you go through for your end of the day retro? Yeah. What was it like on your side, Claire? So you're very proficient with MindMup, which mm. is a really lovely web-based uh, free or to my knowledge anyway, a uh, really lovely free web-based uh, mind mapping application. And we just fired thoughts in. And as we went, you structured the information and we started seeing patterns in what we were talking about and things like that. So it worked really well. What questions do you ask when you lead in a pair programming retro at the end of the day? You said you fired thoughts in, but was there any kind of structure at all of what you specifically like asked or just how did this go today? I am a believer that you should put all observations that you can think of in there. So at the time, I didn't ask anything very specific other than what did you observe? I used to ask, what did you learn? But it turns out that's a horrible question. It puts a bar that is, is not useful. <laughs> Just anything you observe is good. But I very recently have taken to structuring that just a little bit more because sometimes when you look at like an abyss, like you see nothing. When there's too much, you're just like, I, I need I need little things to focus on. And so what, what I very recently started doing is seeding that retro with, okay, like in the center, there's today's activity. But then what did you observe about the product domain? What did you observe about the language? What did you observe about the patterns we're using, about the tooling, about the environment, about our teamwork? And this one is super useful, but a little controversial, which is what emotions did you feel? Because very often, uh, well, especially I think in our line of work, we try to push the emotions out. But usually emotions are your subconscious saying something here is important to me. Pay attention. And so if you if you put the emotion and then you put what happened right before you felt the emotion. right? So it's not like like I felt bored is not enough. You have to say like. When we were trying to get that script to run, that just felt tedious and bored, right? And then you can say, okay, like, why? What What is that boredom trying to tell you? Or I felt angry 
when I tried to mention this and I didn't get listened to, right? Like, okay, what is that anger trying to tell you? Or I felt sad when like the emotion is not enough. You need the emotion plus the triggering event, but that usually is super valuable. Yeah. I was just thinking that like part of that mind map could be not only the things that happened during the session, but like the emotional context of the, to the two of you coming into that session, like, like what were those baselines that could also affect how things went? I hoped you would do that before you start the session. <laughs> like, there's a core protocol of like checking in. So hopefully like coming into the session, you start to sink. As time has gone on, funnily enough, we've often that that initial part of the conversation has grown quite a yeah. lot. We've ended up doing more than purely talking about the programming. So from my perspective, there have been some really helpful conversations about there have been some really helpful conversations, perhaps if I was struggling with a small thing at work or something like that, just having an extra voice uh, somewhere to turn to for, have you seen this before? Have you ever dealt with this kind of situation? Um, you know, can I talk through how I might handle something? And that is not something I've ever really had experience of before. And it's been really helpful and really, really supportive. For me, that was was a fantastic and totally unexpected benefit of answering a small tweet about programming C++ and the Google test framework. It's been quite an honor to, to, uh, to get that kind of support. And in time, I hope I'll be able to share that with other people. Well, I mean, I've already benefited. <laughs> I, I think it's always easy to see the things that you benefit from and maybe not as much the things that you're helping your pair with. Uh, but I've had so much benefit as well uh, from Claire. It's not surprising to me. I think maybe the surprise is that you thought of it as answering a tweet. That, of course, is not why this has been helpful. It's because of the kinship that's formed through working together. And it's not surprising to me at all that kinship has unexpected benefits. Of <laughs> and Claire sort of mentioned like when she has like an issue at work or uh, you know some of the struggles when you are starting speaking. But we also just have we will have because we usually session or we'll schedule like a two hour session to work together. And I think it's fair to say that we have not been keeping to that two hours very well. Is that <laughs> I, uh, for Claire? Uh, when we started, I was in Finland, but now I'm living out in California and Claire has been in Cambridge, UK the whole time. Uh, so we've had to adjust to make our time zones match up. So it's usually my morning now and her her evening. And sometimes I think I keep her really late into the <laughs> <laughs> But we will have sessions where we spend the whole time just catching up with neat things. Right. So like just recently, I spent a month doing conferences out in Denver and out in Budapest and I got back and... I hadn't spoken to Claire in a month and I just had so much stuff I wanted to share. And she had just recently transitioned jobs and like she had so much stuff she wanted to share. And that's fantastic. And we got to share it. And when we were done, we we're like, well, doesn't look like we're going to do much programming today. <laughs> right. But that's just as wonderful and beneficial. It might not show up in the open source, but it's a huge advantage of, of having, you know, sort of a partner to work with. I mean, one day we might actually meet in person. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting how that contrasts with uh, the sort of typically remote and not synchronous nature of a lot of open source work where the teams are distributed and they're working in their own little areas and then occasionally come together to to integrate or or whatever, but don't have that sort of dedicated like time together with multiple team members collaborating more closely. Yeah. And there's so much there's so much they miss out, I think, because of that. Even just this morning, so I was, I was working on something right before we started this podcast, and I was like, oh, I, I think I have a, a way this works. I pinged Claire, and as soon as she saw it, she's like, oh, that that's not a good idea, right? Like, a lot of times, your first instinct, your first thing, like, you miss so many things, right? And And so that first draft is just really rough. And having someone else there who can sort of look at it and say, like, hey, let's smooth this out. Maybe you're not considering that. It makes what you produce so much better and and more polished and and I, I am really grateful that so much like like this project would be so ugly if it was just me right and it is so beautiful and and like thank you Claire really appreciate you saying that thank you um, so yeah when people work asynchronous I, th I think that not only is it is it less friendly like it's it's a worse result.
what's striking me about this is is you know so many people talk or at least the ones i've heard talk about you know the open source community and how you know you're joining a project and you're joining the community for that project and the way that tends to play out at least as far as i've been i've observed and i'm not deeply embedded in a lot of open source work but the from what i've observed is there is a community in sort of a lightweight sense in that there's all these people working on a common thing. But the yeah. community that you two have formed is a very, very different sort of experience for people. Yes. One of the things we wanted to talk about was something that has sort of grown out of that kinship of us working together that is really surprising to me. So approval tests was originally written in Java back in like 2009, 2008, somewhere around there. Uh, but I pair a lot. So it has moved. It's in .NET. It's in Python. It's in Perl. It's in Go. It's in Ruby. It's, it's all the languages. So I've gotten to pair quite a lot with a lot of different people, and I tend to work in this style of remote pairing. Something that is very unique, we have been writing documentation. And so, Claire, I, I don't know why we're writing documentation <laughs> exactly. Maybe, you know, you mentioned your superpower is the sort of archivist. It definitely wasn't in, in the very beginning. I think the first version of you wanting to try to explain this to other people came from uh, your talk about approvals at CPP on C. C++ on C. Yeah, which is a conference out in the, on the coast of England. You want to tell us about that? Yes. Yeah. So by that point, I think we'd been spending about a year together programming a few hours a week, a few hours every other week or something like that. And in a lot of ways, I feel quite privileged to be able to spend my spare time working for free. Effectively, I, I care a lot about testing of software. and um, One of my motivations in life is learning. But I felt that we didn't have a good story around explaining how people could use the software that we were writing. And I think I felt that if we were going to be spending all of this time on it, then I wanted to be able to share the information. And, and that's just because Claire's a better person than me. Like, I'm writing this because I want to use it. <laughs> like, I'm not putting enough thought into the rest of the world. So at that time, I was employed. As I said, I was working three days a week, but I'm sure I was doing more hours than that. So it really was my spare time. Work was benefiting indirectly from it, but not directly. So, yeah, we had quite different focuses at that time. And I'd also been become involved in a fantastic initiative in the C++ community called Include C++, yeah. which is a community trying to make C++ a much more friendly language to learn to provide a really supportive place for people to uh, start to learn the language and to get stronger skills, but also providing a very different kind of support about trying to make C++ conferences more diverse, more welcoming, trying to encourage adoption of codes of conduct and actually having people there backing the, the codes yeah. of conduct as well. We should, uh, let me just explain that a little bit because a lot of the viewers – or viewers. That's an interesting use for podcasts. Uh, but a lot of listeners are probably familiar with the Ruby world. And the Ruby world is actually an amazingly welcoming and supportive community. The C++ world has not been that way traditionally. I consider it a bit mean. Having experienced both worlds, I feel like the C++ culture is a bit mean. It's It's more like you know, I am going to beat you until you prove that you are worthy to be here. And, and in fact, a lot of the C++ language is that way, too. Like, if you do something wrong, it's not going to be give you, like, a nice supportive help message. It's going to give you, like, I'm not going to do anything, and I'm not going to give you information, and beat your head against this code until it compiles. And so, include C++ is, is really trying to change that culture as opposed to the the language, a lot of times we think of the language just as the the syntax, but the language is the culture, it's the tooling, it's the syntax, it's the libraries. So sorry, I just wanted to sort of give that context to people who maybe haven't had an experience with the C++ community. I'm curious how, like at the conference, you introducing approval tests and sort of the story narrative around testing that you created, how that was received, how people responded to it, what kind of things you learned from, it sounds like you're a bit 
at odds with the current culture and the things that you're doing would have an effect and changing that, sharing that information. Include C++ kicked off a couple of years ago, and we, first of all, were on the C++ language Slack channel, but that wasn't as welcoming and as moderated as we liked, so we ended up setting up a Discord server instead. And that Discord server now has over 2,000 people, many of whom are, are on it regularly. So my experience in the time that I was enjoying working with Llewellyn was I was seeing a really positive and supportive and diverse community online as well around C++. And the Discord server has good tools for moderation and things like that. So it's going really, really well. And people are reporting that they're finding it very welcoming. New people are joining the server saying their friend recommended that they they come here and join it because of how helpful it's been. So Outside of that circle, it's making a difference with, as I said, conference codes of conduct and things like that. But for me, having Llewellyn's support and the support on the Discord server for the first time ever gave me the confidence to submit a talk to a C++ conference. And that was uh, this new conference in the Kent coast in England. And I, I didn't have any idea at all of how it would be, what the response would be. But the, line the response took, was awesome. The response was really, really good. The, the line that I took was lots of people know about writing unit tests and mocking and all sorts of things like that. But where approval tests is really incredibly valuable is if you can't even start restructuring your code safely in order to start doing the conventional unit tests. And it turns out that that's a really popular message. I'm sure in a lot of languages, but it's something that maybe because Llewellyn hasn't been involved in the C++ community, I don't know, but there's there are many people who have seen this talk and who have responded to it for whom it was a really welcome message. And I had some some really exciting conversations. We won somebody within a day of watching the video of this talk in February, they, they actually picked the Python implementation of approval tests because that was relevant to their work. But with a small bit of information from me added to, to what was in the talk, within a day, they'd got complete coverage of stuff they'd been trying to test for years. And um, this, this friend on Discord had um, managed to get a good total code coverage, uh, multiple refactorings and approval tests gave feedback multiple times when the refactorings broke things. So it's given me a lot of confidence and a lot of excitement to be able to share ideas that may be well known in other languages, but they are new to C++ and they're really being welcomed. And even just going into the talk, one of the things that sort of showed up is, so I guess it was my ego and, and Claire's caring about other people, but Claire would be like, you know, when I'm putting it against the talk, I have to explain this stuff. And, and I just want to make sure I'm getting – they need to do this so so that it works. And I sort of replied to that with like, oh, it's it's like you're showing my dirty laundry. Like, like I don't I don't want it to have to be that way. I, I want it to be so you don't have to do this this ugly thing to make something work. Uh, so So we actually started like improving things for that. After the talk, she came back with like, well, I got all this stuff I want to archive. Like I, I want to write some documentation. And so I guess like maybe that, that first talk was you trying to like taking an alternative to documentation as a way of like getting this information out there. And so shortly after that, we started writing more and more documentation. And, and another thing that came from that conference was just a really helpful phrase from Kate Gregory, which was um, help messages. Right. Instead of calling them error messages, call them help messages. And it, it's surprising how that changes what you write. And so we had written a help message that sort of said, hey, stuff isn't configured right because we're blowing up. <laughs> uh, but probably it's configured wrong in this way. You need to add this piece of code. And C++ doesn't have a good package managed story. You know, like every other language out there has a has a nice backend manager, uh, but C++ does not. And one of the ways we sort of get around that problem is we take all the code and we put it into a single header file. And of course, it's it's horrible to write code that way, but it's very good to sort of deploy it this way. And so we wrote a little utility to take all our separate files and combine them into the single header file. And as soon as we wrote um, some C++ code, it broke. 
<laughs> and so we broke production. And that, that was not a good day. I, I remember cause we were very, we were happy with the help message. We were, we were proud of, of it. And I, I got a text very shortly after. It was like, oh, like our release is broken. <laughs> and I, I sort of looked at it and I was like, oh, it doesn't realize that the text in this multi-line string isn't C++ because we had put C++ inside of the help message. And I was like, I'm going to have to rewrite the entire parser. It was such a big task. I, I had no idea what to do in it. Uh, and of course, now Claire is is properly sleeping because it is way past midnight. And so I'm just, you know, stressed uh, about it. And when we, we talked in the morning, we were sort of like, what are we going to do about this? And I was like, this is really hard to solve. And it turned out it wasn't. There was a nice little hack that we were able to figure out. But because that was so painful, there's a process that you can use to harness that pain for good uh, called safeguarding. And so we did a safeguarding exercise. And I think this is the only safeguarding we've done. Is that right, Claire? That's right. Yes. Yeah. It was extremely valuable. Do you want to explain the process? Yes. To me, it seems quite, the idea behind it is quite similar to a retrospective, but it's a structured conversation that happens around editing in a shared document. And I'm used to retrospectives being perhaps people writing comments on post-it notes and then talking about the individual post-it notes. But then my experience of that is that often some speakers are more confident than other speakers. And and once a conversation in a retrospective starts going a certain way, it can kind of narrow down other people's inputs. Yeah. So the first thing we did is we, we made a shared Google Doc and we just started typing simultaneously why the answer to three questions. Like why did we write this bug? Why didn't we figure out that the bug had happened before we released the code? Why was it hard to fix the bug? Both of us are are just sort of typing different reasons for this in the document, sort of making, you know, we had the bullet points. And then uh, we voted, which of all the things we just said, which ones are important? And so this is very similar to dot voting, except for um, no limit to the dots. Just Just vote the ones. And after that, we sort of had a list of, okay, what are the top three things that we both thought were important? And then we decided on a budget. And I think we chose 80 minutes. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. I think I started with the day and you said, no way, I don't have that much time. So we narrowed it down <laughs> quite a lot. Time. So then we had a budget and we chose 80 minutes because it divides four easily. And then we did the same thing of in the document of taking those top three things and brainstorming for them, well, what could we do in 20 minutes that would make this problem less likely to occur in the future? And, and we came up with a bunch of things there, and then we voted again. The thing I remember most is the thing I thought was the most important, Claire did not think was important. <laughs> so I, lo- I, I lost that one, but it didn't matter because... I mean, so much good came out of this. And and so we, we, we budgeted that 80 minutes and we did these top three things. And it turns out Claire, I mean, Claire is really good at C++, but she has almost magic wizard skills when it comes to bash. Right. So like our, our DevOps really took a step up after this. And, and we had scripts that, you know, like not just ran our test, but ran our test against the compiled header file which we weren't doing before move the header file even opens a web browser with the window of twitter with the tweet partially filled out to announce our our release and from that we also added in the compiling of the docs we're using something called md snippets what md snippets does is it takes markdown and allows you to put a tag that says snippet in a label and then get that actual code from your source files because it's it's really annoying to write code in markdown right and so we would write the code in our tests and then we'd sort of put this label around it and the snippets would take it from our tests and put it in there and that became part of just every time we would hit the release it would recompile our documentation and that made us start to say every new feature we write needs to include documentation as part of our definition of done 
I want to say that we release something every half an hour to two hours of work, but I am probably optimistic on that. What do you think? Yeah, that's a bit optimistic, but it's not that far off the mark. We start writing a lot of documentation. So every feature we write, we we write a piece of documentation for, and that has changed the way I write code in an almost analogous to like how I changed when I first came into test-driven development. So you talk about documentation as you know, using this word documentation. And yet yeah. I feel like given the other things you said about turning error messages into help messages, yeah. the documentation also has this shift in meaning of, you know, if we're going to take the time to put documentation in with our code and you've got this whole process of, you know, trying to make it meaningful, I feel like it needs a new word. How would you describe what you're trying to communicate with this, these messages that you're bringing out in the world. So I'm not sure if meaning is the right thing, but when I would write my unit tests, I was always thinking about like, does my code work? And the, and the person it needed to work for was me. And, and so there's two parts of that. One, like I understand the code really well. And, and two, I'm just trying to show that it worked. Whereas when we started writing documentation, we're now thinking about how does someone learn to use the code? And that's not even necessarily a single starting point, right? Because you can have different people coming from different places that need to travel the path of learning. Um, so that empathy changed quite a lot as we did it. And they need help. They need help messages. They need help. A lot of times when you would write about that path of learning, you would realize that either you're missing a step, right? Like maybe you need part of your API that you don't want people using once they hit a certain expertise, but they definitely need to so that they can get to that point, right? Like sort of a stepping stone to where you want them to end up. Uh, but also maybe there's some ugly things that they have to do that you don't really have in your tests, right? Because you sort of abstracted away. but as soon as you have to start writing about it, you realize there's this ugly part they have to get through to get to the place that they care about. There's a lot of times when Claire will just sort of ask me, like, is that really helpful for people? <laughs> and that will change our API, like, a lot, right? Because a lot of times the answer to that question is like, well, if they do this and this, it is. <laughs> it strikes me that the chain of events that you describe here is realizing that there was a problem with language in the way that you're describing error messages versus help messages. And that led you to wanting to format your messages better so that they would have more information in them, which led you to having a new build system for your documentation, which led you to thinking about documentation more as a primary citizen in your ecosystem and has now changed the way you develop your code. So it, Tracing it back to that point of realizing that there is a deficiency in the language and then flowing that out into transforming the way you're developing your code and making it friendlier to people and helping them understand it better is a really interesting thread to follow. And for me, it's had um, other benefits as well. So where I worked until recently, we had quite a sophisticated C++ documentation system and I always intended to write documentation, but often struggled to know what to write. And having experienced this different focus of don't think about what needs to be said about the code, but think about what somebody learning to use the code might need to know, completely transformed in my last few months there what I documented. And it actually made it made it more time consuming to write the documentation because it needed <laughs> yes. more thought but the end result was orders of magnitude more useful so it's another example of learning something in one area and being able to transfer it to another area that i thought i was doing a reasonable job of until i discovered or sort of learned another way of doing it so that's been really satisfying for me well and more time consuming in two ways right like a we have to write the documentation and then very very often we have to now change the code so the documentation that we wrote doesn't suck. <laughs> right? Like this involves pride a lot, especially for me. So often when you, when you have to document something, you have to write steps that you really wish you didn't have to. And then the moment that we're doing that, you know, I just, ugh, we have to fix that. Like 
and somehow it feels even more real now that you write the documentation. Like if I didn't have to acknowledge it, maybe it didn't exist. But now I have to acknowledge it. I'm like, no. And so it, it becomes longer because you're taking the time to write the documentation, but it becomes significantly longer because you now actually have to write code that is worthy of sharing with other people where before we didn't have to do that as much. We've toyed with the idea at one time of trying writing the documentation first and then writing the code. Yeah. I don't know if that would um, <clears throat> make it better overall, but maybe it's something to experiment with. Um, we did Google it once and documentation driven development is a thing that multiple people have talked about. It's, it's not a new creation, but I think it's an interesting idea to experiment. Definitely writing it alongside of writing our code has, has been transformative. I guess when we started, I thought all the samples would come from the tests. Definitely, we had to write some new tests to get some new samples. But then we started finding things that weren't appropriate in the test. So I guess the first things we started finding was you have to do some configuration stuff. And so it didn't really make sense to put that in the test, but we would put it in sample projects so we could grab our, our code from there. And then the thing that surprised me the most is we have some of our snippets coming directly from the API code, like not the test projects at all, but right in our API code. Notably, like in the reporters, we use sort of a chain of responsibility. We're going to try this tool, then this tool, then this tool. And we take that directly from production code. And that code, of course, has to be very clean and, and just really intention revealing code. But it was surprising to me that like I would be taking documentation from the API and say, here's how we're making our decisions. Let me share that process with you so you have an idea of how of what we're doing. Yeah, that strikes me as actually particularly valuable because so often documentation is about the what and not the why or the how. And and when you can illuminate that how, like this is this is the mental framework of, of decision making that the code is going through, you're gonna get much deeper understanding than if A, then B, or like a quick yeah. outline and then go read the code yourself, you can figure it out from the branching. <laughs> yeah. And then there's this pride aspect of you're writing documentation for something and that revealing all these things of that you're, you know, you feel Ugh, like, I, I don't want to talk about this ugliness. I want to be able to communicate this message of, you know, this beautiful, easy process of the way it should be. And so when you have steps in there that are like, shouldn't be there, but it reveals, you know, kind of this, the ugliness of the process of the things that you have to know about that you shouldn't have to know about, right? And so you, you start to learn about the leakiness of your abstractions from a standpoint of what do you need to understand to be able to, you know, work through this process. And if you can hide something behind an abstraction such that you don't really need to know about it, you can understand it from the perspective yes, of yes. the abstraction, then that's a good, healthy abstraction, right? We can document it. We can explain it in terms of this metaphorical abstraction. And we're all good. You don't need to know anything else, right? But as soon as you have to start explaining the guts for someone to realistically be able to work with it, suddenly it breaks that magic effect. And the process of documenting creates this revealing loop, if you will. It's a way to test the, like you're testing something fundamentally different about the, the experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you're also testing the communication. Like, am mm. I communicating at the right level here? There's a tester who, um, she started to learn to read code because she wanted to be able to look at the commits to figure out where to test. And she said, like, in the beginning, when I didn't understand the code, I just felt like it was because I wasn't, you know, I was a tester. I wasn't a programmer. I didn't understand programming enough. It's like now I realize if I can't understand the code when I read it, it's not because I'm not a good enough programmer. It's because the programmers didn't write clean enough code. It's not your authorship that, you know, needs to be improved so you can understand. If you can't understand a document, it's, it's because it hasn't been written clean enough. And that really shows up when it hits the documentation. Like, are we making things easy enough for people to learn? And we're doing better now that we're writing the documentation, uh, but we're still far from perfect. 
And so one of the things that will happen is we will revisit our own documentation. One of the weird things is now that I have documentation, it's surprising how often I use it myself. I send links to it to other people to explain things. It's super useful. And and often we will read our own documentation and, and just sort of be like, what were we thinking? <laughs> And even it just like a week later, it, it's surprising, like that entire swap memory goes away and it's almost like you're a new person reading it. And, and very often that can be helpful to figure out the things that we thought made sense that clearly don't. I had another question, too, but this is a bit in a different direction. This came yeah. up a while ago when I was taking notes and I noticed when you were talking about the retrospectives, you made a point of asking lots of what questions. What do we observe about all of these different things? And that when you asked about learning or like, what did you learn? You found that that was a bad question. Yeah. And then when you did a retro on a bug in the safeguarding process, all your questions became why questions as opposed to what questions. Yes. And I'm curious because I, I feel like there's similar dysfunction around leaping to why questions before you've done the observation. And so I'm wondering why you make that context switch to why questions as opposed to what questions and what are some of the differences you see come out of that? I mean, so the first thing is when we're doing the retro at the end of a session, we ask for the what questions, but then there will be conversations. The why conversations sort of are coming out of the what. For the safeguarding, we did not do that retro while the bug was still in play. We solved the bug before we did safeguarding because, A, who has the capacity to like critically think and reflect when, when like things are still burning? So, so a lot of the what had already been figured out, right? Cause that, that's what debugging is, right? Like debugging is that gap between what you think the computer does and what the computer actually does in that gap. Like lots of things happen. And so once we had figured it out, a lot of the what had already been answered. And we are now in a place to think about the why. The other thing that's very different is in, in a retrospective, you're trying to get all these things happened. Let's figure them all out. Whereas the safeguarding is is much more focused on what action are we going to take to make future us easier? Right? Like so, the idea of safeguarding is that it's not that we messed up. I mean, we messed up. There's no question about that. But while we messed up that one thing, there were hundreds or thousands of other lines of code that we got right. Right. So instead of saying like, "Why aren't you perfect?" it instead says. Why was it so hard to make it right? How can we make it easier? Have you heard the term like the pit of success? Like the idea that you can fall backwards into success. And and so we want to make it the terrain easier to go through so that we just sort of come to some place that works naturally. And so the safeguarding is much more action focused, whereas the retro that we're doing is much more awareness focused. Like we want to be aware of what just happened so that we can get some self-awareness, get some something there. Whereas the safeguarding is, if we do not do the actions that come out of that, there's no reason for us to do that retrospective, right? It is all about, we are going to make the environment easier to succeed in. So I'm thinking though, okay, just with the question you asked, yeah. why was this so difficult? my brain immediately switches to what were some of the things that I observed specifically around the difficulty and getting myself out of why mode and thinking in what mode immediately, because I feel like the same thing happens when we ask why questions as our brain goes into trying to explain as opposed to trying to observe. And in a bug retro, I do my WTF retros, right? This is my thing. I'm always trying to ask what questions, what, what made troubleshooting take so long? I've seen other folks too, like gravitating toward what questions and away from why in, cause we have this, you know, five whys process that comes out of lean, right? And the so, folks that I've talked to that are kind of doing more brain researchy type stuff, why basically invokes our explaining reflex. And what questions invoke our observation reflex? And you made such a point about the importance of observation. I was really struck by the shift there. And I'm wondering if 
unraveling those whys into more observation oriented questions might be a more productive method to identify observations specifically around the safeguarding activities. So I have the document. One of the things that we both agreed on was the reason it didn't get caught sooner, the reason this bug made it to production, is we are unsure if the starter project, which is where it first surfaced, was even part of our CI. So our CI worked on one project, but of course there was a downstream project from us, and that wasn't even part of our CI process. We've been keeping manual scripts of, here are the things you need to do. And our manual script had too much manual stuff in it. Like it was just, we both agreed there are too many steps that are manual in this process. And then we also agreed that the order of those scripts was wrong. (laughs) Those were the big things that came up and why we thought this happened. And then we brainstormed, like, what should we do about that? And we decided to make it so that we actually check things off the list when we did it, which we're no longer doing. We decided to remove and automate some of the steps, which we did actually quite a lot of. And then we added commands to do things like dating and uh, like a lot of those little manual steps where we had to figure out, you know, we'd have to put version numbers and stuff. And now we have like a a global variable where we say, hey, here's what the new version is. And it pulls it all from there. Uh, And we rearranged the script. And those were the four things that we, we actually acted on. And so I think that you might be right that we would get more insight into things maybe by by observing more but i'm not sure that we would get more action like that was really painful that pain is a good source of energy to fix things the other thing is at that point we probably didn't have that many users of the library so whilst we were really worried about it it probably wasn't affecting that many people externally I'm interested, though, in the difference between what and why, because looking at Llewellyn's blog post about the steps to ask in safeguarding, you described it as, why did we write the bug? But the wording is actually, what caused us to write the bug? And this, in some sense, is not the what caused versus why. Maybe that's just a wording thing, but if asking why makes it harder for people to, to answer the questions then switching it for what cause. It's a tiny change in wording, but it probably makes made us more open in, in as we filled in those gaps in the document. There's also a paradigm framing effect in the questions when you're thinking about mistake-proofing or safeguarding versus what can we do to make these outlier phenomena more observable? How do we make it so whenever anything goes wrong, we're more easily able to identify the root cause of what it is? And so I feel like the questions we ask around these things, like one of my common questions is what made troubleshooting take so long? And focusing on what kinds of things we can do to reduce troubleshooting time as opposed to mistake prevention. It's around engineering for observability as kind of the prime focus. Just assume that you're going to make mistakes. How do we make it easier to observe? And it doesn't mean that mistake proofing isn't. You can also make it though so that you don't make mistakes. I'm not saying. I I mean, so that you make less mistakes. Yes. I mean, I think they're both valuable practices, but the frames and the questions lead to different answers, different insights, different improvements. Yes. Why didn't we catch it sooner is all about observability. This is really interesting. And it reminded me of a of something I saw recently of a different way of running retrospectives. So I was really used to a sort of four quadrants, what went well, what didn't go well, you know, what made us happy, what made us sad, that kind of thing. And I saw somebody run a retrospective completely differently, which was to say the same events would have different emotions for different people. So completely take away the what made us happy, what made us sad, just write down things that happened, write down observations without any emotion attached to them. And I thought it was was really, really healthy, and I wished I'd learned it quite a long time ago. So I'm really interested in, you talked about the paradigm framing effect. I guess that means how you frame a question directs how people answer the question. Is is that right? Have I understood that right? Yeah, I mean, I think the questions we ask influence the thoughts that come to mind. We ask different questions, we get different thoughts, you get different insights. And so having a really good 
list of questions to ask that can help you bring different sorts of answers and insights to mind about things. The questions imply the underlying models you use to compare and understand your experience. So like, for example, you, you mentioned the question, Llewellyn, of why did it take us so long to find this bug? There's also this question of, okay, now that we know that the bug is there, what made it take so long to troubleshoot? And in the DevOps space, you see a splitting of metrics of time to identify that something is wrong. What's the delay there? Versus once we've identified the thing, how long does it take us to recover and get a fix into production, say? And uncovering that fix, there's a whole other set of dynamics around people who have the, the knowledge about the things, about our ability to observe what's going on, about the complexities in the code that there's a increase in the likeliness of funky interacting parts that can cause weird emergent behaviors. And there's so many dynamics to the causes that I think when we try and ask why questions, it short circuits our mind to kind of look for a blame in a certain frame. I think we miss a lot of the opportunities to observe the dynamics of the system and observe it in the context of that rich complexity. Whereas if we asked things in terms of the different dimensions of risk had a a rubric of questions that we could ask around the different factors that influenced the likeliness of these things. Like we could ask specifically about knowledge and familiarity around uh, whatever the understanding was that was required to understand this bug. What brains was that information in, right? Was one person aware of certain parts of the system and another not? I mean, in this case, you've got, you've got two people <laughs> involved. So you've got kind of a, a smaller system in terms of information spread and you've been, you know, pairing on all the work. So yeah. So it's almost closer to one person, like one, one, one <laughs> yeah. entity, one pair. Yeah. 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 And that's one of the cool things about mob programming, right? Oh, yes. It's- God, yes. Cause it, the communication tax just goes way down like there's not how do i get everyone aligned we are all aligned and you mentioned this like all my holes in c plus plus are completely covered by claire (laughs) right like my my lack of knowledge doesn't matter it's what i have to bring to the table that matters so all my benefits are there and all my negatives don't count and and that's that's just huge and i guess we haven't really talked about this but claire has a lot of c plus plus knowledge from what, 30 years of C++ you've been doing? 20, 20 years of C++. Plus. Yes. 30 years of programming, 20 years of yes. C++. Yeah. But you also have really deep and rich cultural understanding of C++. Right? So there are a lot of times when I would do something that completely compiles and works. And Claire would just like shake her head and be like, no, like <laughs> that is not how you do that in C++. And there's no way I could do any of that without like, I wouldn't even know that what I'm doing is like a faux pas. Is, is it possible to have a social faux pas in, in code? But like, yeah. But, yeah. And so this is where that, you know, because we're, we're sort of one entity, so many of of the holes in my knowledge just don't matter. And so it's just much easier to work with us as an entity than us as, as two separate people. And, and with a mob that, that also applies to the team. Cause now you have a team as opposed to five individuals. So there's that there's also, you mentioned sort of maybe the framing might slightly be dependent on the safety that is felt. I, I mean, like, so the thing that's resonating with me a lot through going through all this, this history has been just how valuable the kinship and how how wonderful the kinship with Claire has been. We've been able to have what I consider difficult conversations, conversations I would not feel comfortable having with a lot of other people that I know. It was easier to use the the why questions is because that safety and understanding, like we were building on top of that. I want more things to come out of the safeguarding higher up the chain. 
I agree that observability is important. I agree that the ability to fix things quickly is important. But the things that make it so that we don't do it are are really valuable to me. And I'm glad that we got a lot of things that made it so we are no longer making mistakes, not because we're being more disciplined. Any system that like relies on discipline is, I think, fundamentally broken, right? <laughs> so so I'm, I'm really glad that like we just took away things that we would stumble upon, right? So if the code is so complex that it, it's easy to make mistakes, I'd rather see the code become simpler rather than we have better ways to figure out where the mistake is. I appreciate what you said about my C++ skills, but I, I wanted to point out that C++ is a rapidly moving target these days. So up until 2011, it really hadn't changed very much. But now every three years, there's a new version, uh, major, major new additions to the language come out. And my C++ knowledge goes pretty well up to 2011, but not beyond that, very little beyond that. I've enjoyed this working on open source projects so much, and I've enjoyed speaking at conferences and sharing what I've learned so much that I recently took quite a big leap and decided after 31 years it was time to change some things, time to learn some more and catch up more with C++ and spend more time in the C++ community. So the strength and the knowledge I've got from this working relationship was a factor that contributed to my decision to to become independent so I can focus on this learning a lot more. So uh, lots of useful things coming out of, of this conversation that will feed into that. So Llewellyn's very, very kind about my C++ knowledge, but any, any more up-to-date developers might look at our code and go, yeah, but you're not doing this, you're not doing that. And to them, I'd say it will come over time as I as I catch up and learn more about newer developments in the language in my newfound learning time. So to quote you from one of her recent retrospectives, you don't have to be perfect. (laughs) That is not a a requirement to be great. Uh, At the end of the show, we like to do what we call reflections, which is to talk briefly about the things that have most struck us from this conversation, the takeaways that we're going to have, and uh, just the new ideas that we're going to be turning over. Um, I can get get us started with this. Two things that that definitely are going to be sticking with me, which is, one, the idea of using a retrospective in such a small scale. Like, normally I'm thinking of them as, you know, you do them after a project or after a sprint or sort of a longer-term, bigger project thing. But doing something simple like that after a a conversation uh, is a really interesting idea. And it's actually something I'm going to start doing with the people that I'm mentoring and use that as a way of feeding back that is learning into into what we're doing so that our relationship and the way we do it can can improve and um, i think the other thing was also just the difference in in level of community there's like regular level uh at, at most open source involvement which is you're working on tickets you're submitting pull requests maybe there's a discussion list at some point versus what you're doing which is like turbo community where you're you know building kinship and you're working together deeply and and learning to communicate and you know really the code is a fusion of your two minds together rather than lots of people contributing lots of little things. And I sort of wonder if more projects would be served better by that sort of work. I don't know if it's sustainable or even possible in, with a global, you know, especially more than two people spread out across the globe. Finding a time for that is hard, but I do wonder what the possibilities are there. Like, like I mentioned just this morning, I was, I was working on it and I was working with uh, some people out in Switzerland. Most of the work that is reoccurring occurs with me and Claire. But both of us have paired usually one-off instances. They're usually like half an hour to two hours, which seems to be the amount of time that somebody is willing to spend on their own problem, where it is actually really beneficial if you have a problem with something that you know, like we have written, you bring expert knowledge about why you have that problem. Like You have expert knowledge about that problem. And sometimes that includes like what your environment is set up with so that we can even reproduce the problem, which could take, you know, many hours to set up. Whereas when you just share a screen, you're like, look, it's right here. So we do actually do quite a lot of one-off pairings with people around the world. uh, And that is so fantastic. And I would encourage any open source project to do it. You gain so much from actually seeing how your users are using your project and fixing it with them. It is huge. 
I'm not sure if that's the same as sustainable, but I think it takes as much time to sit with somebody and fix a problem as it does to read their pull request. So I don't think we actually save much time through normal pull requests. I think that if you open up that channel of communication, you will be amazed at what you benefit from it. So for me, I want to read more about the paradigm framing effect. Uh, I'm really, really interested in understanding how changing the wording of a question can change. Well, I was going to say the response that you get, but but you talked about it even framing the thought processes that follow the question. And I think that's uh, that's a completely new thing to me. And I want to want to understand it better and see how I can use it maybe for work, maybe outside of software development activities as well. I think, I think that's potentially really valuable. For me, I don't want to say like I wasn't appreciating how lucky I am to have people like Claire in my life to pair with. But this definitely made me realize like not only am I appreciative of, of that kinship and, and, the, and these people who enjoy programming with me, but like how, how rare that actually is. The fact that I have someone that like almost weekly we can get together and enjoy programming together. I think I was appreciating that that's great. I maybe wasn't appreciating how lucky and rare I am to have that in my life. I, I guess my, my main reflection is just, yay me. <laughs> like, like, I'm just so grateful to have this, this friendship and have this kinship. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think the thing that stuck out the most for me is just how much taking the time to think about what you're doing from perspective of sharing affects what you do. So when, you know, you're writing code and you're thinking about someone else having to learn that code and consume the things you wrote, how much that affects what you end up doing and how you do it. And just by putting documentation on things, I feel like documentation isn't even a good word for it. It's just like, we're going to write down information about the things, but that's not really what we're doing, right? We're crafting the experience for the person who is consuming our work. We're crafting the experience. We're designing the experience. And I feel like that's what Claire has brought to your work, Llewellyn, is this. Absolutely. Is that is sort of sharing oriented of let's, let's actually think about what the experience of learning is going to be like and how we can take all the things that we're doing and build our work for other people to use in the world. Let's take it out there and build a story around how this should be used and help people to overcome those hurdles to get it and get it out there. So I, I think it's really brilliant to see how Claire brought that to you as, you know, and created this team and these new skills, this new perspective from you two working together on this. So I think that's really great. Yeah. Yeah, that's been really great for me. Like I have this little Claire that sits on my shoulder and I get to hear her voice every once in a while. <laughs> well, thank you too for coming. This has been really great talking to you both and thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you very much indeed. It's been fantastic. Yes, thank you so much. 